Ooh, okay. All right. Um, today we are looking at Second Chronicles chapter 35, Revelation chapter 21, Malachi chapter 3, and John chapter 20. Welcome to the Daily Bible Reading Show, Daily Bible Reading Show. Uh, I'm Calvin. This is live from Cambridge in the UK. Uh, thank you for joining me. Uh, let me pray and look at these four different passages. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Help us to hear it. Um, help me to speak it uh, in a way that's clear, that's faithful. Please wipe away any mistakes. <laughs> But help us as well to receive this word with thankfulness, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, it's December 30th. Tomorrow is, well, December 31st, Christ Christmas Eve, New Year's Eve. And it's meant to snow. Oh, wow. Um, I know. Uh, it's so cold. And I figure if it's going to be so cold, it might, it might as well snow. So I wonder, I wonder if we could do something fun with that. Um, I've always been meaning to try to do something outdoors. Uh, it's just that I, I don't know about the internet connection, but if it's possible, if it's possible, maybe for the very last episode for the year, maybe you could do something outdoors, have a look at uh, maybe golden hour. I could wake up really early morning and oh, I'm, I'm just running away from it. Okay, let's, let's focus on today. But you know, maybe, maybe tomorrow, come back tomorrow. Maybe I'll do something early and then people can catch it, you know, in Asia, back in Malaysia, because, you know, this is like, 1am, 2am back home. Um, but that would be really, really cool. I'm looking forward to that. Okay, all right, okay, but on to the Bible. Let's see. Oh, I'm not prepared. I had coffee today. Joel, this is your your fault for giving me coffee. I never used to drink coffee, but I'm drinking coffee at like six o'clock in the evening, and so I'm so super hyper. Okay, yeah. <laughs> that's what that that's the reason for this. <sighs> okay. Second Chronicles chapter 35. Josiah kept the Passover to Yahweh in Jerusalem. They killed the Passover on the 14th day of the first month. He set the priests in their offices and encouraged them in the service of Yahweh's house. He said to the Levites, who taught all Israel, who were holy to Yahweh, Put the holy ark in the house which Solomon the son of David, king of Israel, built. It will no longer be a burden on your shoulders. Now serve Yahweh your God and his people Israel. Prepare yourselves after your father's houses by your divisions according to the writing of David, uh, king of Israel, and according to the writing of Solomon his son. Stand in the holy place according to the division, divisions of the father's houses of your brothers the children of the people and let there be for each a portion of a father's house of the levites kill the passover sanctify yourselves and prepare for your brothers to do according to yahweh's word by moses josiah gave to the children of the people of the flocks lambs and young goats all of them for the passover offerings to all who were present to the number of 30,000, wow, and 3,000 bulls. These were of the king's substance. His princes gave a freewill offering to the people, to the priests and to the Levites. Hilkiah, Zechariah, and Jehiel, the rulers of God's house, gave to the priests for the Passover offerings 2,600 small livestock and 300 head of cattle. Conaniah also, and Shemaiah, and Nathaniel, his brothers, and Heshaviah, Jael, and Josabad, the chief of the Levites, chiefs of the Levites, 
gave to the Levites for the Passover offerings five thousand small livestock and five hundred head of cattle. So the service was prepared, and the priests stood in their place, and the Levites by their divisions, according to the king's commandment, they killed the Passover, and the priests sprinkled the blood which they received of their hand, and the Levites skinned them. They removed the burnt offerings that they might give them according to the divisions of the fathers' houses of the children of the, the people to offer to Yahweh, as it is written in the book of Moses. They did the same with the cattle. They roasted the Passover with fire according to the ordinance. They boiled the holy offerings in pots and cauldrons and in pans and carried them quickly to all the children of the people. Afterward, they prepared for themselves and for the priests because the priests, the sons of Aaron, were busy with offering the burnt offerings and the fat until night. Therefore, the Levites prepared for themselves and for the priests, the sons of Aaron. The singers, the sons of Asaph, were in their place according to the commandment of David, Asaph, Heman, and Jeduthun, the king's seer. And the gatekeepers were at every gate. They didn't need to depart from their service because their brothers, the Levites, prepared for them. So all the service of Yahweh was prepared the same day to keep the Passover and to offer burnt offerings on Yahweh's altar. According to the commandment of King Josiah, the children of Israel who were present kept the Passover at that time and the Feast of Unleavened Bread seven days. There was no Passover like that kept in Israel from the days of Samuel the prophet, nor did any of the kings of Israel keep such a Passover as Josiah kept with the priests, the Levites, and all Judah and Israel who were present, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. This Passover was kept in the 18th year of the reign of Josiah. So wait, so he was eight years old. So when he was 26, he had this huge Passover celebration. You know, Passover remembers the rescue from Egypt you know, under Moses when he killed the Passover lamb and God's spirit passed over each household that had the blood of the lamb painted on the lintels, uh, on the doorposts of each house. And so this commemorated that. But ever since the days of Samuel, um, remaining even including David, there was not a Passover celebration as grand as this. And this is following on from yesterday's reading where Josiah rediscovered the Bible, you know, Deuteronomy, most likely the book of Deuteronomy, and read it and wept and tore his clothes. And, and you might have noticed as we read this, you know, there were these little additions according to the, according to the book of Moses. So here in verse 12, they did it according to the book of Moses and verse 13, according to the ordinance. So they were extra, extra careful to, you know, read what was in the Bible and to obey it. And therefore this, this Passover was um, in, a, in accordance with that. You know, that. That's a response to that. But also some other really nice touches in here, uh, I think gives us the date. You know, verse one, they killed the Passover in the 14th day of the first month, which is the right time to be having the Passover. If you remember Hezekiah, 
um, had to delay it by one month. So you go back a few chapters, you see Hezekiah celebrated it on the second month. Um, the 14th day, and that was because he wanted to incorporate all the people around Israel who had not celebrated it for a long time. But here, you're able to celebrate it on the proper date, and so everything was done according to regulation, according to stipulation. Um, also, also certain things like, you know, it says here in verse three, really interestingly, the ark. He says, put it back into um, into the house of Sol- house which Solomon built, meaning the temple. Meaning the ark was, for some reason, not in the temple. The ark was, you know, the temple was built around the ark. You know, it's meant to be there. And so all these things which were not in place, which were out of sync, Josiah reinstituted and put them back into place in accordance with the word of God. That's why he did. Uh, Another interesting touch I noticed was uh, just Kananiah. Yeah, Kananiah. If you go back again to... Um, the time of Hezekiah when he had so much offering and he had to kind of like distribute it and manage it uh, properly. I think, I, I'm pretty sure Kananiah was mentioned there. And so uh, for all this time, you know, here he is back again. He must have been so happy to be back and celebrating the Passover under a godly king. He would have seen all these pretty horrible kings in between, you know, Ahaz and Amon and really, really horrible kings. And But now, but now, you know, he, he's back, you know, doing the job that is meant to everyone celebrating the Passover, everyone, you know, all the elements back where it's supposed to be and God being worshipped as he should be according to his word. So we stopped, uh, we stopped somewhere. Let, let's see, let's pick up where we stopped. Da, 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 da. Where, where? Okay, verse 20. Let's pick up from verse 20. After all this, when Josiah had prepared the temple, Necho, king of Egypt, went up to fight against Carchemish by the Euphrates. And Josiah went out against him. But he sent ambassadors to him, saying, What have I to do with you, you king of Judah? I come not against you today, but against the house with which I have war. God has commanded me to make haste. Beware that it is God who is with me, that he not destroy you. Nevertheless, Josiah would not turn his face from him, but does guised himself that he might fight with him and didn't listen to the words of Nico from the mouth of God and came to fight in the valley of Megiddo. The archer shot at King Josiah and the king said to his servants, take me away because I am seriously wounded. So his servants took him out of the chariot and put him in the second chariot that he had and brought him to Jerusalem and he died and was buried in the tombs of his fathers. All Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah. Jeremiah lamented for Josiah, and all the singing men and singing women spoke of Josiah in the lamentations to this day, and they made them an ordinance in Israel. Behold, they are written in the lamentations. Now the rest of the acts of Josiah and his good deeds, according to that which is written in Yahweh's laws and his acts, first and last. Behold, they are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. So this is 
kind of sad. Um, if you remember, there was, I, I can't remember, there was actually one king who was very similar to this. He tried to hide himself and went against God's word and was killed as a result. And that's Josiah having had this stellar career of having reorientating the whole country back to God, back to God's word. Towards the end, he's killed because he stands in defiance to God's word. And how unsuspecting unsus- it is that God's word comes from this godless king, Pharaoh Nico, Nico, king of Egypt. You know, he's fighting against this other country and um, Josiah gets involved. And interestingly, what this king of Egypt says to Josiah is, God is with me. And you come against me, God will be against you. You know, look at this. I come not against you today, but against the house which has war. God has commanded me to do this, to do this quickly. God is with me, and that God doesn't destroy you. And so here, I'm not sure what to make of this, but here is an amazing thing. Two things, two things really interesting about this. Firstly, that God would side with this foreign king. And God would speak this word through this foreign king. Uh, previously, you know, uh, I think in the previous chapter, if I if you just go back, I think even after uh, Josiah finds the book of the law, he still goes to this prophetess, and um, and yeah, and and who then who then she speaks to him. So here, yeah, there it is. Um, Hulda the prophetess. And so Huldah says, you know, God is saying this to you, and he listens to her. And and so actually, you know, Josiah has a pretty good track record of listening to God, whether it's in written form in the book or from the prophets. But for some reason, he I think he didn't expect this to happen, that God would speak to him the same word, but through a foreign king. And so that's the first thing that's that's just surprising. But the second thing is, he doesn't listen, and he gets killed. You know how how sad is that? You know everyone still celebrates him as a good king towards the end. You know they all remember his good deeds. They say there, and they create lamentations, meaning they really, really appreciated having such a good king, and they really, really mourn his loss. But still, it, it's it's surprising, isn't it, that this good king dies because of disobedience? And there you have it, Second Chronicles. Chapter thirty-five, yeah, King Josiah. Uh, what a what an end! What a just just that, that little little bit of that end that he, you know, he he didn't quite make it all the way to the end. It it's it shows us that even the best of kings and with the most faithful hearts fail, and you know, get killed in the process. It makes us long. For a truly faithful king who obeys God from beginning to end, who obeys his word and hears him and is able to speak his word as well. That's Jesus, by the way. Okay, so that's our first passage. Let's move on to the next one. Um, sorry, if you don't mind, I'm just going to check to see if anyone's looking. Probably not. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, let me have a look. Oh, okay. Do, 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 do. With one hand, I'm going to check. Hmm. <laughs> Okay. Oh, wow. Hey, Daniel, thank you. Thank you for sharing this. Uh, hey, good to see you, brother. Uh, really, really appreciate this. Uh, appreciate this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yep. Thank you, brother. Uh, yeah. <laughs> really, really appreciate this. 
Uh, yeah, cool. Let's go on to our next next reading, Revelation chapter 21. This is what happens when I drink too much coffee or any coffee at all. You know, I started out this year not drinking a drop of coffee. And then a few months ago, a friend of mine, you know, just buys some and sends it over here. And now I can't stop. It's a super hyper. Revelation chapter 21. Here we go. I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and first earth have passed away and the sea is no more. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride, adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice out of heaven saying, Behold, God's dwelling is with people, and he will dwell with them, and he will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, death will be no more neither will there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore the first things have passed away he who sits on the throne says behold i am making all things new he said write these words of god uh, write for these words of god are faithful and true he said to me i am the alpha and the omega the beginning and the end, I will give freely to him who is thirsty from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes, I will give him these things. I will be his God and he will be my son. But for the cowardly, unbelieving, sinners, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their part is in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Let me just pause here and just, you know, just speak to anyone who's listening or maybe not now, maybe later, but just to say how these are meant to be words of encouragement to those who are discouraged. And notice how heaven comes down to us. You know, you don't, you don't often think of that. You know, you watch movies and you think you die and you go up to heaven, you ascend to heaven. But here, you know, John sees the holy city as a bride coming out of heaven and descending to his people. And here, and the idea is that God has come to live with us. And, you know, it's, it's, it's almost as if God is preparing all this for those whom he, whom he loves. You know, it's, it's, it's this whole salvation project, you know, from creation to new creation. God has been planning and planning and planning, and towards the end, he reveals it for the sake of those whom he loves and those who've been through so much. Now, why do I say that? Verse 4, He will wipe away every tear. Death is no more. Mourning no more. Crying no more. Pain no more. Notice how it's in the no more negatives. You know, it doesn't say there will be endless food, endless joy. You will have, you know, lots of fun. Heaven will be so exciting. No, it's talking about the stuff that we experience now that is so painful, so frustrating. Death, mourning, sadness, coronavirus, or maybe even just that feeling of emptiness that God takes away. He will wipe away every tear. And all these things will be in the past. Almost as if to say, 
that God God needs to deal with all that, all that sadness, all that brokenness, because before He can fill us with His joy, He needs to deal with all that disappointment, all that death that we experience right now, before God can even begin to open up the categories of heaven. Meaning again, so this is God's word of encouragement to those who are discouraged right now. Yeah, and you know, just therefore, everything that happens from then on is just reassurance. You know, verse five. You know, write these things for these are faithful and true. It's almost like saying this sounds too good to be true, but you know, just reassure people this is real. This will actually happen. And and God swears it by Himself. You know, I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning. It's it's almost as if I am in control. Alpha and Omega is talking the A to the Z, the beginning to the end. God has organized everything, including the middle bit, which seems so messy. God has organized everything so that you'll reach this end. And you know, to Him, you know, I will give freely to Him who is thirsty from the spring. Of water, he who overcomes, I'll give these things. And again, speaking to someone who is thirsty, or you know, the idea of overcome means is almost like there's this big hurdle or this big, big obstacle that you need to overcome, and it's almost saying, keep on going, go, don't, don't, don't give up. In fact, the fact that you are struggling right now, you are thirsty, <laughs> you're just—it's just so hard to overcome, but you're still trying. That's the person whom I will give heaven to. He who overcomes, I will give these things. I will be his God. He will be my son. I hope I hope this encourages someone, especially if you think that it's just so overwhelming right now. You just can't deal with it. God says that's precisely the mark of someone to whom you know I will be their God. I will give this heaven. I will give this promise, and you can trust in these words. Verse nine. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls, who were loaded with the seven last plagues, came. We saw that a few days ago, and he spoke with me, saying, "Come here, I will show you the wife, the Lamb's bride." He carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain, and showed me the holy city Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her light was like a most precious stone. As if it were a jasper stone, clear as crystal, having a great and high wall, having twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and names written on them, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. On the east were three gates, on the north were three gates, on the south were three gates, and on the west three gates. The wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them twelve names of the Twelve apostles of the Lamb. He who spoke with me had, for a measure, a golden reed to measure the city, its gates and its walls. The city is square, and its length as great as its width. He measured the city with the reed, twelve thousand twelve stadia. Its length, width, and height are equal. Its wall is one hundred. Forty-four cubits by the measure of a man, that is of an angel. The construction of its wall was jasper. The city was pure gold, like pure glass. 
The foundations of the city wall were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each one of the gates was made of one pearl. The street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. The city has no need for the sun or moon to shine, for the very glory of God illuminated it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light. The kings of the earth bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. Its gates will in no way be shut by day, for there will be no night there, and they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it, so that they may enter. There, there will be, there will in no way enter it into it anything profane or one who causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So, oh wow, um, I need to keep this shot short, otherwise, <laughs> we'll be here all night. Um, temple. So, the high point of this, uh, of this section is verse 22, where, where John says, I saw no temple in it. And that's strange because it's full of temple language. It's almost like you're describing a chicken. It smells like a chicken. It talks like a chicken. It, it, it walks like a chicken, but I saw no chicken there. <laughs> so strange because everything he describes here is its combination of, of the temple, temple, temple. So for example, the fact that it is, it is, has the, you know, the, the, all the different uh, precious stones, the, uh, this, this is reminiscent of all the stones uh, that the high priest wore, uh, wore on him, you know, to symbolize the 12, the 12 tribes of Israel, all the precious stones. Uh, even, even the measure, the height, the city, which had the same width and the same height and the same length, that essentially a cube, that is reminiscent of the Holy of Holies, you know, that, uh, that cube structure, it's meant to be that space whereby the Ark would be located. And the idea is that the temple is meant to be the place where God lives, but there is no temple because God is living with his people. And that's why he says he saw no temple there because the Lord God Almighty, let me find it, uh, no temple, the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. There's no need for a structure. There's no need for a place because God is now living with you. You know, again, so God brings down heaven because God has come to dwell with you. This is almost an even fuller picture of Christmas. You know, Christmas is God coming to dwell with us as a man, Emmanuel. But here, this is that fullest picture where God himself will dwell with us and all of us in this city that the entire city itself is a temple. That's why the whole thing has been scaled up, you know, with all the gates and with the walls and with all the different foundations. All And also a lot of the materials are the same materials you find of the throne of God, you know, Jasper, especially back in chapter four, is now integrated into this city. That means we'll, we'll literally almost be living in this space that God occupies. That's the idea.
Another idea that's interweaved into this is the twelveness. I try, I try to accentuate it when I was reading it. I know the twelve apostles, twelve foundations, you know, three gates here, three gates there. It keeps taking twelve, 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 twelve. And if you remember back, you know, chapter seven, for instance, you know, uh, which talks about the twelve times twelve times a thousand. You know, it's talking about the fullness of God's people in the old and in the new tw New Testament. The twelve tribes, and it, and so it's talking about all the redeemed of people will be there. It's it's the city itself is, it's a people. It, it's talking about how it's made of all the redeemed. So all these symbolisms of these stones, of these gates, of these pearls, is talking about the completeness of God's salvation of all whom He will save in the old and in the new testaments. Meaning, it's saying that you'll be there. You know, if you are in Christ, you've been redeemed. If you are, if especially talking about you in terms of not just you individually, but you as a people, you as your church, you as your maybe even your nation. You know, if God intending to save every nation, tribe, tongue, and and and, and ethnicity, God will save them, and everyone will be represented there in this new heavens and this new earth. Um, could I say more? A lot more. But, but I need to stop. But the idea is there again. God's people, God's presence coming together. And that's the definition of heaven. You know, no, nothing about, you know, uh, what kind of food we'll have there or what it'll look like or what we'll do. But a lot about God will be there and you will be there. And that's heaven. And that's Revelation chapter 21. Okay, let's move on to the next chapter. Uh, Malachi chapter 3. Oh, that's an interesting one as well. Let me get some water. Uh, what are your plans, by the way, for the new year tomorrow? Lots of people are doing countdowns. Can I encourage you, you know, if, you know, I know that Zoom is not like the best platform, but, you know, do something, plan something. And don't just wait until like the end of the day. You know, why not get up early tomorrow? You know, go for a walk um, by yourself. I think you're, if you're in tier four, you're meant to go out by yourself only. Don't go to a shop. Don't buy anything. Go out, take a walk, you know, maybe listen to a good sermon, listen to a good song, or bring the Bible with you. Just walk about and just think about God's word and think about this past year, as difficult as it has been, how God has used it to change you, to focus your mind, to focus your heart on Christ. And then in the new year, come into it having had all these thoughts, kind of processed, having having prayed through them even. And then if there's something that is on your heart that you meant you want to bring to God, you know, do it tomorrow. Do it so that you can start afresh in the new year. Why not do that? And maybe if you're you're able to do that with a friend you're living with, with your family, even better. But you know, don't let don't let the time pass, especially if you have the time off. You know, make full use of that. Uh, do, do, do. Okay, Malachi chapter 3. Here we go. Behold, I sent my messenger. Oh, who is here? Yeah. And he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant whom you desire, behold, he comes, says Yahweh of armies. That's just one verse, but... Sorry, sorry, let me just stop there and just say a little bit about this. We're reading the book of Malachi, and Malachi literally means my messenger. <laughs> so it could be Malachi. Behold, I sent my Malachi. 
and he'll prepare the way, but probably not because he's talking about something future looking. You know, there's something that's going to happen before God comes. God's going to send this messenger. But there is obviously an overlap. You know, God is sending this Malachi now to speak, remember, into this void. Before there's this void, this intertestamental void, and also this void whereby people have taken God's worship for for granted because things have been just so boring. Nothing's happened for years. And God speaks his word into his void through this Malachi, through his messenger. And God will send another messenger into another void before he comes. So that's one connection. But the other thing that's really interesting as well here, this prepared a way for me and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come. So wait, so you're waiting for the Lord to come, but the messenger comes instead. But secondly, he repeats himself and the messenger whom you desire then comes. And this is, by the way, these two are very parallel. The Lord whom you seek and the messenger whom you desire. So on the one hand, the messenger is different from the Lord. But on the other hand, the Lord is the messenger whom you seek. So again, you know, there's this overlap. And we know from the New Testament, for instance, that Jesus himself identifies this messenger, this person who comes with John the Baptist, you know, he says that right after the transfiguration, they ask him, you know, who is, who is the Bible talking about? He, said, he says definitively it's John the Baptist. And therefore, Jesus identifies himself with this Lord, with God himself who comes in doing so. But at the same time, Jesus, you know, this verse finds this overlap that what Jesus has come to do is also to give this message, that Jesus has come, one of his important roles is to speak this word of preparation. Okay, I better carry on. It's the only verse one. At least you'll be here all day. Okay, verse two. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who will stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, like launderer's soap. And he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them as gold and silver. And they shall offer to Yahweh offerings in righteousness." Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to Yahweh as in the days of old and as in ancient years. I will come near to you to judgment and I will be swift, a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against the perjurers and against those who oppress the hireling and his wages, the widow and the fatherless and who deprive the foreigner of justice and don't fear me says Yahweh of armies. For I, Yahweh, don't change. Therefore you, sons of Jacob, are not consumed. For the days of your fathers, you have turned away from my ordinances and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says Yahweh of armies. But you say, how shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings, you are cursed with a curse, for you rob me, even this whole nation. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and test me now on this, says Yahweh of armies, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing that there will not be room enough for, 
I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, and he shall not destroy the fruits of your ground. Neither shall your vine cast its fruit because it's time in the field. Before it's time in the field, says Yahweh of armies. All nations shall call you blessed, for you will be a delightful land, says Yahweh of armies. Your words have been stout against me, says Yahweh. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have followed this instructions and that we've walked mournfully before Yahweh of armies? Now we call the proud happy. Yes, those who work wickedness are built up. Yes, they tempt God and escape. Then those who feared Yahweh, they spoke with one another. And Yahweh listened and heard. And a book of memory was written before him for those who feared Yahweh and who honored his name. They shall be mine, says Yahweh of armies, my own possession in the day that I make. And I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. Then you shall return and discern between the righteous and the wicked, between him who serves God and him who doesn't serve him. Okay, how to keep this short. Let's just use verse 18 to kind of unlock this last section. Um, the people here at this last objection say that there's no difference between someone who serves God and who, who, who doesn't. So that's, that's the objection that comes here. Um, it is vain to serve God. So there's no point me going to church, in other words. And God ends up by saying, on that day, you will be able to see that there is a difference. And so how, how does God do that? How does God convince these people that actually it makes a difference? You know, you staying on and holding on to Christ. And more than that, you staying on and continuing to serve Christ. And this is speaking to people who are doing ministry, who are speaking the gospel, who feel as if they're just wasting their time because that's the context of Malachi. People who have been kind of like, doing doing the rote thing of you know they're, they're serving god he speaks to priests in chapter two but they do it here mournfully <laughs> what's the point of going on mournfully for the yahweh of armies so they're complaining about serving god but they're, they're they're still doing the job they're still doing it but they at in the corner of their eye verse 15 they envy those who don't have to go to church on sunday we call the proud happy or oh, those who those who are not christians those who get away with all kinds of things god lets them escape look there yes they tempt god and they escape and so essentially you're saying you know if i were them if i weren't a christian if i did all those unchristian things you know, maybe I would be happier, more prosperous, you know, I'll be just, you know, making more of, of my life than doing this thing here as a Christian. And essentially what happens is, well, I think, how, how do I put this? God doesn't actually give them an answer. Actually, what God does, notice here, actually, God essentially says to them what's on their hearts. You, notice he says, you have said this, you have said this. And all throughout Malachi, what, what God is doing is, he says, you have said this, and therefore I'm going to say this to you. And therefore God reveals both what's on our hearts and what's on his. And after this six times of God revealing this, 
I think what's going on here is it finally clicks. God's word reveals not just what he's saying to us, but what's actually going on inside our hearts. And then maybe, maybe, maybe for the first time, we realize that we go, hey, that's true. Maybe I have been begrudgingly doing these things in God's name and not realizing that God is not pleased. And therefore, you see, the thing is, in verse, in verse 16, there's a sudden change of heart. Those who feared Yahweh spoke with one another, and God listened in on that, on that discussion. And, you know, as the discussion said, they feared Yahweh, therefore they spoke with one another in a maybe much more uh, repentful way, repentant way. And therefore, he wrote down this book of memory. God almost wrote a list. Oh, that guy over there, that guy over there. They're talking one another in a way that really encouraged one another and feared my name. Because it repeats it. Feared Yahweh and here feared Yahweh. And then spoke with one another and honored his name. And therefore, it's saying that one of the signs of repentance is not just us kind of like saying all kinds of things or doing all kinds of things in church. But actually, with one another, actually, it's it's not for nothing that uh, the Bible calls us to confess our sins to one another because it's one of those things whereby we become real with one another, and we almost make these these kind of resolutions. Hey, I think we need to turn back. You and I, you know, both of us. I think we we've been going about this in a way that really dishonors God, and when we speak like that in an open and honest and repentful way to one another, it says your God listens. And God, she takes note of that. And in response, God says, these are the guys who are mine. They will be my possession. I will spare them as a man spares his son. And then you'll be able to tell the difference. How will we be able to tell the difference? From our, well, from God, what God says to us, yes. But actually also, also from what we say to one another. Here's the thing. Sometimes we keep these things in our own hearts. We think no one hears. God hears. Sometimes we keep these things in our hearts and we think no one else is thinking these things. But actually you might find <laughs> that maybe, you know, that sin that you're grappling with, someone else is dealing with the same thing. And that repentance that you need to respond with, someone else needs to join you and do that as well. How will you see that difference? You will see it in God working in our hearts together and through our speech to one another. Well, at least that, that's, that's my, my take on this last bit of Malachi chapter 3. It's so, so real. I think, especially in a, you know, a British society, we don't say a lot of stuff. We say the right things to one another. But oftentimes, we filter it. We, we coin it in such a way that we say the things that we think the other person wants to hear at the expense of saying the thing that's really happening in our hearts. And here, I think they're saying to one another, the things that are actually they need to be repentful of, and therefore the other guy goes, "Yep, I think you're right. Let's let let's turn back and let's do this together." Yeah, um, I need to stop again. Too much already from Malachi chapter three, but so much good stuff here that speaks to just how real it is. Our conversations to one another signify, you know, the re true repentance, true gospel realities, true community. Okay, so our last passage, John chapter something. Um, yeah. Oh, Erickson. Hello. Hi, Melissa. Hi. Nice to see you. Thanks. Thanks for stopping by. Um, Daniel and Simon. Oh, wow. Hey. Hi. Hello. <laughs> Hi, guys. Hello. Nice to see you. 
Uh, I'm in the last passage today, John chapter 20. Let's go. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went early, while it was still dark, to the tomb, and saw the stone taken away from the tomb. Before she ran and came to Simon Peter, no, therefore she ran and came to Simon Peter as a response, and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've laid him. Therefore Peter and the other disciple went out, and they went toward the tomb. They both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. Stooping in and looking in, he saw the linen cloths lying, yet he didn't enter in. Then Simon Peter came and following him and entered into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying, and the cloth that had been on his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but rolled up or folded up in a place by itself. So then the other disciple who came first to the tomb also entered in. It's like, do, 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 do. <laughs> and he saw and believed. For as yet they didn't know the scripture that he must rise from the dead. So disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary was standing outside at the tomb weeping. So as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. They asked her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing and didn't know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Who are you looking for? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say, Teacher. Jesus said to her, Don't hold me, for I haven't yet ascended to my father. But go to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. When therefore it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were locked, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the middle and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples therefore were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus therefore said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they have been forgiven them. If you retain anyone's sins, they have been retained. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, wasn't with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands, the prince, 
in his hands the print of the nails. Put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side. I will not believe. After eight days again, his disciples were inside and Thomas was with them. Jesus came, the doors being locked and behold, sorry, locked, lost, doors, and stood in the middle and said, peace be with to you. Then he said to Thomas, reach here your finger and see my hands. Reach here your hand and put it into my side. Don't be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and have believed. Therefore, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might, you may have life in his name. Oh, okay. How shall we split this up? Notice there is a big and a small and a big and a small. So um, what do I mean? First, there is uh, Peter and the disciple whom Jesus loved, John. And then there is Mary. And then there are all the disciples. And then there's Thomas. And so what we have here is, you know, in terms of responses of faith, true faith and true trust in Jesus, in terms of that big picture and then that personal picture at each point. So first we look at Mary. You know, Mary, you know, is a very interesting pic picture because she didn't actually go into the tomb. She's weeping outside the tomb. But these two guys, they go in, they see the evidences, they see the linen cloths. And it says that very, very clearly, um, verse 8, you know, he saw it and he believed. You know, it's as if, you know, you there's this sufficiency that the evidence that they see there, yep, okay, I got it, I got it. But then sometimes some of us, we go, hey, you know, but I need something that's more personal, that's more direct. And then you have Mary. And so Mary, you know, she is just full of grief. You know, she truly, truly loves Jesus. And you would think that she would be the prime candidate, first person to actually believe, but she isn't, she isn't actually, is these two guys, you know, who are having this race to go in and then who have this kind of like notional, conscious belief that then descends into their hearts. But for Mary, she needs this personal encounter with Jesus. And it's almost funny. She thinks she's a gardener. You know, she, she doesn't recognize him the first thing. But the moment that Jesus says to her her name, Mary, she turns and immediately she recognizes him from his voice. There's something very personal about that. Something that goes back to, you know, what Jesus says about the sheep being able to recognize the good shepherd's voice and Mary being able to recognize, hey, that's, that's Jesus speaking to me. And Jesus saying to her, you know, I, I know almost like this was personal for her. You know, he, he didn't have to do this. You know, you know, it was sufficient for Peter and John to see the, the linen cloths, but Jesus came, met with Mary, and encouraged her, almost like, okay, I'm about to go up, but you know, I'm going to stop here. I'm going to say hello to you. And I'm ascending to the Father. You can hold on to me. But he says, go to my brothers and tell them. So he sends her as this personal witness to reinforce this, 
resurrection occurrence, this this New Testament witness, knowing that he's going to appear to them, by the way, but he sends them this personal encounter witness in the form of Mary. And so that's the first thing. You have the big picture and the small picture. And you have the same thing again with all the disciples and then with Thomas. So all the disciples are there. Um, uh, and by the way, all this happens um, first day of the week. So there's, there's a theme going on here with this new day. It's after the Passover after the seventh day and this new day that's begun. It's like, like a symbol of this new creation, this new life. And it's one of the reasons why Christians celebrate on this first day on a Sunday. It's, it's a picture of the resurrection. Every time we meet on a Sunday, every meet, time we meet on the first day, it's symbolic of this. We're celebrating this new start to life, kind of like the new year. But so here, so this new day, Jesus appears to them. They're all fearful and Jesus appears to them and says, peace be with you. As the Father sent me, I send you. And then speaks, the, speaks peace to them, gives them the spirit. So that's a Trinitarian formula of this sending of this mission that Jesus gives to them. And they all go, yep, okay, perfect. That's Jesus. But for some reason, there's Thomas is in there. Verse 24, Thomas was in there with them. He says, they tell him, we've seen him. It's true. But no, he said, no, unless I see his hands, see the print of his nails. You know, he says, I want to see real evidence. And he needs to be personal. I need to stick my fingers into his side, into his hands. And by the way, um, Thomas, it mentions here, is called Didymus. Didymus means twin. And that could mean either that Thomas had a twin brother. More likely, though, I like, I like the idea that Thomas was probably called a twin as a nickname. As in, out of all the people of the disciples, all the disciples, Thomas was the one who was most characteristically like Jesus. And therefore, when it says he was a twin, he actually is almost like another Jesus. You know, that means out of everyone, you would think Thomas would be the person who would definitely, definitely trust Jesus. But here he becomes the most skeptical. And it's kind of like Mary again. The one who loves Jesus most is the one who is most broken and most mournful and can't see Jesus because of her tears. And here is Thomas, the one who is most like Jesus, the most likely to believe, the one who trusts God the most, the one who says, you know, let's go with him to, that we may die with him back in chapter 11. You know, he's, he, he, he's the one who stands up and puts up his hand and says, yes, I, I know that it's going to be him. He's not the one who doubts Jesus the most, the one who is most skeptical even. And, and it's important to see that, therefore, the people who are perhaps the most skeptical, the most uh, cynical, might actually have started out as the most believing and the most trusting. And something has happened along the way that caused them to, to think that way, to shift that way. And again, Jesus appears to him personally. He says here, you know, peace be with you. Same thing he said to the group. Say, but he adds in, reach out your hand. See my, see my side, you know, touch, touch, see my hands, touch my side. Don't, don't, don't be unbelieving, but be believing. And Thomas confesses Jesus essentially as God. And Jesus says to him something that he then almost like with a side glance says to us, Blessed are you that you have seen me, and therefore you see these things and you believe. And blessed are those who have not seen and believed that's talking about us you know we really really want to see wouldn't that be great if you could see and let me just say to you that actually i think it's important to see i think we need to be able to see jesus and we will one day but there is here this jesus saying that you are not less than this it's not saying that 
it's not a rebuke saying, oh, you need to see, therefore you believe. Because I think Jesus, the whole, the whole gospel is saying that you do need to see. You do need to weigh the evidence in order to believe. But you are not less than Thomas. You're not less than these people who have this firsthand account. Because, verse 30, Jesus did many other miracles, but this gospel is there for you so that you can believe. You know, this, this gospel, the fact that you're believing through this gospel, you're believing through, through the evidences that you see here in this gospel in the Bible, doesn't make you any less of a believer, any less privilege of knowing that Jesus really is the Christ. Because here it, it's almost as if John is speaking directly to you. You know, these are written, verse 31, so that you might believe, so that by believing you might have eternal life in his name. And it's talking again to anyone who is skeptical, like Thomas, who is broken, like Mary, that Jesus has this vested interest in speaking into that skepticism, speaking into that sorrow, speaking into that unbelief, and helping you to come to that place of faith and trust and submission before him as Lord and Savior. Okay, so that's uh, John chapter 20, I think 20. Yeah, so we have one more chapter tomorrow. Our last reading for tomorrow, last reading for the year. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for these guys who, who hello, Daniel. <laughs> Hi to you as well. Uh, really, really appreciate it. I really appreciate your time. And also to those who are watching this later, I know it's super, super late back in Asia and a few of you watch this after. Um, let me pray for us and especially to commit these readings to our hearts. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this personal relationship we have with Jesus, that each one of us have come to this place of trust and of conviction because we have seen and we have believed that Jesus really is the Christ. And thank you for that promise that in believing, we might have eternal life in his name. For the amazing cosmic picture of the new heavens and new earth, new earth for that, you know, very deep-hearted warning of the need for repentance, the need for turning back to you and not trusting you every step of the way. Thank you, Lord, that you are constantly speaking to us, that word of relationship, of, of love, and, and of faith to us through your word. Please keep doing so and help us to have that heart that will constantly turn back to you. As we come close to you, please come close to us and help us to receive these words, to receive Jesus with faith, with joy, with thanksgiving. We pray in his name. Amen. Bye.